We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed the u.s men's team failed to qualify for the world cup but no other country may be better able to come to terms with a world cup without the home team than the united states our incredible size ethnicity and diversity mean our direct and indirect connections and attachments to countries and cultures not the united states will be front and center Many will also discover teams this summer that speak to them because that's what a World Cup does. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking the American soccer culture as it gets ready for a World Cup without the home team. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment. We'll be answering your questions in our Ask Alexi segment. We'll continue with our World Cup date segments and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy. He has returned, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher slash writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mr. Mossy? I am good. Glad to be back. We missed you last weekend. Getting Wally Pipp by a bowling guy would have been the ultimate indignity, but I was invited back this week, which is uh, good news. Although our producers made sure to tell me how great the numbers were for last week's podcast. Great so. numbers uh, for the guest hosting of uh, Rob Stone in for the State of the Union. But we did miss you. We did talk about you, uh, and we did talk about soccer. Uh, uh, a, a little uh, reminder, this is the last State of the Union podcast that we'll be doing from the United States before we leave this week for Russia for the World Cup. Now, don't worry. You're going to get plenty of State of the Union content throughout the World Cup in various different forms and different uh, lengths. So you, your appetite for State of the Union will be served. Are you packed yet for uh, Russia? I am not, which uh, is of grave concern to my mother, who keeps <laughs> texting me, reminding me I need to get started on that. But uh, I figure a couple hours before the flight takes off, I'll... I'll now, we are recording this on a Monday. What day do you leave? Uh, Wednesday. You leave Wednesday. I leave Thursday. So you will be in Moscow, in country ahead of me, and then we all obviously get there the day the day after. I have done this so many times now that I have got a packing uh, program, if you will, because inevitably you overpack for something like this. While you will be gone for six weeks, some maybe even more, you do not need underwear for six weeks. Last time I checked, there is uh, laundry service in Russia, as well as electricity and all sorts of things uh, for you to use there. So that's my only advice to you. All right. So be prudent, be efficient, and recognize that what really is going to end up happening is you're going to wear the exact same thing over and over and over and over again. It is a Groundhog Day existence. It is the best Groundhog Day that you could ever live. I cannot wait. All right. Enough chat about that. Should we get to this week's State of the Union? Should we light this candle, Mr. Let's Monster? do it. All right. As always, we start with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union. As always, I give you my take on the state of soccer as it relates to the United States. This summer, America will once again show that we are a soccer nation, and one unlike any other. To some, it'll come as a surprise, but to most, it will confirm what we already know, that we have a unique American soccer culture that is passionate, diverse, and incredibly educated. Yes, it sucks that the U.S. men's team failed to qualify for the World Cup, but no other country may be better able to come to terms with a World Cup without the home team than the United States. Our incredible size, ethnicity, and diversity mean our direct and indirect connections and attachments to countries and cultures not the United States will be front and center. Many will also discover teams this summer that speak to them because that's what a World Cup does. American soccer culture is much more than our national team. It's layered, it's nuanced, and it's complex. 
We remain fiercely proud and protective of our soccer, but we respect that we're part of a much larger global soccer community, a community that comes together to celebrate through the World Cup. The World Cup is a party, and while we won't have the U.S. team to cheer for this summer, that doesn't mean the U.S. isn't coming to the party. And that's this week's State of the Union. All right, Mossy, thoughts? No, I agree. Um, it's funny because people sometimes bemoan the fact that U.S. fans have an inferiority complex. They don't embrace their Americanism as much. But I think in this case, it's actually a benefit not having maybe as strong a national identity when it comes to soccer as other countries. I mean, there are other countries in the world where if they don't qualify for the World Cup, it's like, get this out of my face. I don't even want to think about this. Well, I agree with you. I think uh, U.S. fans will still get into the World Cup. Now, I know you haven't been in the U.S. for the last few World Cups. You've actually been at the yeah. uh, host nation, so maybe you don't have quite the sense for this. But do you think there'll be a discernible drop in enthusiasm or the, the bars will still be packed? Everybody will get into it every day. It'll be front page news. I don't think it will be like it was in previous World Cups because you obviously don't have that that nationalistic type of fervor, uh, the ability and the desire for the United States, for us that we, that we love to wrap ourselves in the flag and the red, white, and blue. So you're not going to have that. However, I think that you're going to have people, as I mentioned in the State of the Union, that have these direct connections that will, that will only be amplified in this moment. But I also think you're going to have people coming to it uh, that are just sports fans and just fans of big events that are going to as I said, gravitate for whatever reason. You, 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 may like, you may like the team colors. You, may, you might like their jerseys. You might like, uh, like as I said, they're, they're, they're really good-looking players or they, their songs or all the stories that we're going to tell about the players and about these, uh, about these countries. But I, I want to be very, very clear. In no way am I saying that it is a good thing that the United States national team is not at the World Cup. I, I'm just saying that, and as you mentioned, our country because of the unique aspects of our country, it is built in a, to, in a certain way to withstand something like this. But it is not a good thing for soccer, it is not a good thing for American soccer to not have this moment that comes and this platform that comes and not to be able to utilize that, that, that platform. I think we're gonna be really surprised, maybe not us that are knee deep in soccer, but I think the, the United States is going to be surprised by how many people actually are following this, that are into this, and, and even groups and, and people that you wouldn't necessarily predict would be part of this World Cup. Yeah, the World Cup has that Olympic sort of quality that even if you're not a fan of the sport, you can still get off on the whole pageantry of it. It's just such a great event. So now one thing, one thing I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but... It's never stopped you before. Yeah, I mean, this whole notion of, listen, I think in the absence of the U.S., it makes sense for us to really cover Mexico because there are mm -hmm. so many Mexicans in this country. But this notion that U.S. fans should root for Mexico, I do find strange, especially when we spend so much time building this up as this incredibly intense rivalry. To me, that runs contrary to that. So I, I don't get the whole U.S.-Mexico thing. But you, you, you think it's strange or do you think it is unpatriotic? Because I have been accused. Look, first of all, I'm not telling anybody that they have to root for anybody including Mexico. I'm just telling you that I'm rooting for Mexico. I want them to do well. And it's coming from someone, obviously, that played for the United States. There's not a chance in hell if the United States was playing Mexico that I would ever root for Mexico. But guess what? Need, need I remind you yet again? The United States is not in this World Cup. And so while they remain our biggest rival, I don't know and understand why that precludes me from wanting good things to happen to this team. You, you, just, you just find that strange because it, it runs counter to what your traditional view is of what a rivalry should be? Exactly. And, and to be honest, most of my rooting interests separate of my teams is based on hate. If I sit down to watch a game in which my team is not involved, I figure out which team I want to see lose this game more. And that's generally how I base my rooting interest. And I think a lot of people, actually, if they're honest about it, are, are like that. So uh, it just be weird to me to, to, for a U.S. fan to all of a sudden transfer their loyalties to Mexico. But, is, but isn't it a little apples and oranges when it comes to Brazil, Argentina, as opposed to the United States, Mexico, with our incredible, obviously, proximity, which, which certainly would apply from a, 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 a Brazil-Argentina perspective, but the intertwining of our two countries and our two cultures and, and whether it's just language and through geography and just culture I, I think it's a little bit different in that we have adopted mexico and mexican culture in into our into our country 
in a much greater way than I would I would I would think that art, uh, that Brazil has adopted Argentinian culture into the, into their country. No, that's fair. That's a fair point. And, and you know, another thing, if you don't have maybe a national team you're passionate about, but you have a favorite club team, it's common to root for those players from your club team to do well. And in that case, you'd have maybe an LAFC fan rooting for Vela to do well, or Galaxy fans rooting for Giovanni dos Santos, Jonathan dos Santos. So there, there's a connection there. There's an angle there you could take maybe as an American and justify rooting for those Mexican players to do well. So yeah, you're right. Uh, that's, a, that's a fair and, point. And, and not for nothing, but if you look at the ticket orders for the World Cup, all right, thousands and thousands of tickets are being bought by Americans going to Russia to see the World Cup. And that happens every single World Cup. This is a soccer nation that we have here in the United States. As I said before, it's no longer niche. It's no longer underground. It is above ground. It is vibrant. It is passionate. It is discerning. And as I mentioned in the State of the Union, it is educated, maybe even more so than other countries because it's had to be because of the inevitable compare and contrast. But I, I submit this to you. It does not make you any more of a fan. It doesn't make you any more patriotic or loyal to your country by not supporting your biggest rival, okay? So when people scream and yell at me because I have the audacity to say that I want our biggest rival, which is Mexico, to do well, that doesn't make you any more genuine or authentic or relevant when it comes to how how you are viewed and how you view yourself in this in this soccer world. It just that that's how I just can't understand why you would you would think that by me doing that, I'm somehow sullying the 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 competitive nature and the rivalry and the tradition and the history of US Mexico. And also as I said before, I'm not telling you what to do. So it's not as if I'm saying you have to support Mexico. Hate Mexico. I do do whatever it is that that uh, that gets your rocks off. I really don't care. <laughs> but I want you to watch Mexico <laughs> from uh, from a business perspective, and I think from a soccer perspective, it's something that that we want you to do. And anybody that has ever been involved in business will recognize that us turning this attention and putting a tremendous amount of focus and attention onto Mexico as the broadcasters in the United States, the English language broadcasters in the United States at Fox of the World Cup, a World Cup, by the way, that does not have the United States in it, anybody worth their salt when it comes to business will recognize why that is done. But in no way do you have to do that. Last comment from me on this. Russia has always been a country I've been very fascinated by. Uh, how much will the location of this World Cup add some intrigue in the U.S., especially because Russia, let's be honest, has been very much in the news in the United States? I think that Russia is going to be as big a star as any player on the field. I am the product of the growing up in suburban America, uh, growing up in the suburbs of Detroit in the 70s and 80s. And what Russia came to represent for me was based on you know, a lot of misinterpretations, I'm assuming, but it was based on pop culture. So it was movies like uh, War Games and Red Dawn uh, and Firefox and this big bad Russia. And there was always the, the, the nuclear threat and the back and forth. And we talked about Russia on a daily basis. Here we fast forward to 2018 and we're still talking about Russia on a daily basis. It holds a fascination for me. It is one of the few places in the world that I haven't been, so I cannot wait to see this country, albeit through the lens of a World Cup, which means that it's going to be a little bit diluted. An airbrushed. A little bit airbrushed, but still, I'm looking forward to comparing and contrasting what the country is, what the people are, what the culture is, and maybe dispelling some of these preconceived notions that I have, or maybe confirming some of them. But ultimately, I think that, that Russia is going to be a huge part of this story this summer, uh, as, it, as it should be. And I think it will, to your point, draw a lot of people in specifically because it's of Russia. I mean, when we come in the air that first day on July 14th to start the World Cup, we're coming to you from an iconic place. We are coming to you from Red Square. That's where our studio is going to be in all its glory, in its, all its iconic uh, glory. And it, it is going to be very, very clear that we are in Russia and people are going to be very curious as to what our experience is and what the World Cup ultimately is through a World Cup in Russia. We might see Elizabeth and Philip Jennings walking around. Are you a fan of the TV show, The Americans? 
Uh, I've heard that it's a really good TV Excellent show. Excellent show on FX. Uh, it actually ended. It was a bit surreal watching the final oh, episode. So ever. now I'll watch it. Because uh, as you know, I only watch I only <laughs> watch something that I can binge from start to finish. I don't want to catch up and then have to wait every week. I want. But yeah, the, the premise is it's this, these two Russians who uh, live in America for many years as spies. I won't spoil the ending for people like you that haven't watched Thank it. You. But it was a bit surreal watching the show, and it's Russia is very front and center. And when I'm about to get on the plane to go to Russia, so I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be fun. And and as I said in the State of the Union, I I think. I think America is going to embrace this World Cup in a way that for many is not anticipated, but I think ultimately it's going to be a fun summer, one where many people discover teams and players that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise. But in no way does that mean that it's not a failure uh, or a huge disappointment for all of us that a U.S. team isn't there. But we have a job to do, and I think it's going to be a a great summer, and one that myself, you, and anybody that tunes in uh, is going to remember for a long time. Mossy makes the case. Yes, it's time for that point in the podcast when my good friend David Mossy makes the case. Mossy makes the case. What do you have for us this week? My case is that if you're a great player with ambitions of becoming a manager, now is a pretty good time to make that leap. There was some massive news this past Thursday. Zinedine Zidane stepped down as Real Madrid boss, fresh off winning a third Champions League title in just two and a half years in charge, which is just incredible. But also that same day, this got somewhat overshadowed. Derby County appointed Frank Lampard as their new manager, a man with zero managerial experience at any level. And this is on the heels of a few weeks ago, Rangers appointing Steven Gerrard, whose managerial experience consists of a cup of coffee as Liverpool youth coach. So the two MLS legends, Lampard and Gerrard, both are now coaches. Now, I know Derby County and Rangers are not Real Madrid, but I do think there's a connection here. I've always been fascinated by this debate over whether great players make great coaches and how much should someone's playing pedigree factor in when you're determining whether to hire him as your manager. And I do wonder if the success over the last decade of Pep Guardiola and Zinedine Zidane has really swung the pendulum that way. If we're going to see a trend now, if it's going to become in vogue to hire a great player, even if his managerial resume is thin and just assume that that, those leadership skills, that footballing acumen is going to translate. Uh, There's been a lot of talk about Zinedine Zidane's legacy as Real Madrid manager, a lot of different ways you can go there. But I think this is one of them. He might have finally buried this notion that great players don't make great managers. I think it's something that bears watching in the coming years. Now, you were a general manager who was in charge of hiring and firing coaches. What do you make of that? I mean, how much uh, did you factor in a guy's playing pedigree when you were making those decisions? I factored it in because I think it can be a benefit. When it comes to the, the, the particular people that you are talking about, I think it's a little apples and oranges. I think for a player like Lampard uh, or Gerard, if they were to have been offered, let's say, uh, not Real Madrid, what would the equivalent be in England? Uh, Man City or one of these teams where, and, and I know this is being a little bit unfair, but you throw out the ball, and you still have a chance, a much better chance than most of the other teams in, in that league of winning. And so that's, that's different, all right? Where did Der- Derby County finish? I, I can't even... What, what, what? They're in the championship. Yes, I know they're in the championship, right. but... Perhaps one of our producers can... All right, we'll, we'll get you that information. But, um, no, I mean, and to your point, uh, there was a lot of Thierry Henry Arsenal buzz, right. but when it got down to it, they, they opted for a safer choice when I Emery, so they weren't ready to make that leap. I guess the question would be, do you see big clubs over the next couple of years trying to chase their Zidane and thinking, well, look at how well he did, look at how well Pep did at Barcelona. Maybe we can go this route of hiring one, a great player, no. even if he doesn't no. have this great resume. I, I, I don't think that it is going to be this thing. Uh, they finished, uh, from our crack crew, sixth in the championship, right? So they're a mid to upper-level team, right? Right. This is not him taking over Real Madrid. And if you are a a former player with very limited coaching and almost no coaching experience uh, in terms of your your coaching resume, and you were given the opportunity to take over Real Madrid, you run, you take that over because you're hedging your bets, because you have one of the best teams in the world, more money than 99.9% of the teams out there, and you know you're going to win. Now, the expectation is that you win, and and, and really the judgment comes in ultimately winning the big things, but still, it's not... I mean, I don't... Zinedine Zidane is a great coach for Real Madrid. That's that's all we know right now. If he took over a mid-level or a lower-level team, could he figure out a way to get those players to play better? As a, as a unit and individually, can he coach them up? I don't know. And you're going to say, how, how dare you say that? Well, we, we don't know. Maybe we'll find out. I 
I doubt it in the same way that Pep Guardiola has never been at a place where, he's, where he has to do that. And it doesn't mean that they can't. But until they actually do it, you don't know. It is, it, they've only been successful in a, in a single way. But to, to answer your question, I don't think that this is going to be a phenomenon where they are constantly hiring uh, former players with very, very little experience. The allure is there because you think, I'm going to let you in, in on a little secret, you think that former players have the, the, the magic bullet. And you think that they've seen something in their career, either in the locker room, on the field, or just uh, as they've gone through, that is able to fix everything. And that there's something magical that they have. It's not the case. And, and, and really, when you look at the percentage that have actually been able to do it, it's very small. Because as we know... It's, it's easy to do. It's much more difficult to be able to tell somebody how to do something that you have done. And players get frustrated, especially great players get frustrated because they've never, it's always been innate for them. They, this is, I just do it. And when they have players that either they can't tell how to do it or they just can't do it, it can, it can become incredibly frustrating to these, uh, to these players, including Diego Maradona or who, whoever. I mean, there's a long list. So Zinedine Zidane is, is the exception to the rule and a wonderful exception. And I think people are really excited, as they should be, about what his next move is. I think it's going to be a sabbatical and then where he, where he ends up later. But this is one of the greatest players ever to play the game who has very quickly become one of the greatest managers in the game. Yeah, one of the fun elements of the Mourinho-Pep rivalry I don't know if Mourinho feels this way anymore, but once upon a time, Barcelona was his dream job. And in 2008, he thought he was going to get it, and they went with Pep instead. And here's Mourinho, a guy that had no playing career to speak of, but really paid his dues as a translator, as an assistant, took some lesser jobs, winning only Liria, worked his way up the chain by achieving success, and then gets to the point where he thinks he's going to get his dream job, and they go with Pep, who's a guy who had just retired a year earlier, coached one season of Barcelona B, and Mourinho, by all accounts, was furious and has resented Barcelona ever since, although hard to argue with the choice that Barcelona made. But do you see the argument in the, in the other side, guys that maybe weren't great players but paid their dues, and they resent the, like a great player just uh, getting these jobs? You know, just because he was a better player than me, I'm more qualified to be a manager than him. You know, what do you make of that? Uh, life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair. Uh, <laughs> and I know whether it's me personally or any, any player, you get certain advantages and you get the benefit of the doubt uh, often. You, doors will open for you in, in a bunch of different ways. They won't stay open forever, but you will get a more direct and oftentimes quicker pathway to opportunities than other. And I'm sure it's incredibly frustrating. It's a frust- it happens in life, and it's frustrating in life when you get passed over or you see somebody who hasn't put in the work or hasn't gone the traditional route get an opportunity. Well, as I said, welcome to life. That's, that's the way that it works. But ultimately, I think in this day and age where we talk about analytics and we talk about numbers and we and talk about qualifying and quantifying things so much, I think that the allure and the attraction of stardom and fame and legendary status is lessened. And while from a, from a branding standpoint for clubs, it, it might look romantic and, it, and certainly can bring attention. You know, one of the reasons we're talking about Derby County right now is because of the coach they just made. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. And so I, I get why you do that. But ultimately, I think that that managers or clubs and certainly people that are making these decisions are going to be much more prudent and, and more often than not fall on the side of people that have the experience because they can't afford to give the keys to the car for someone that has never driven before or if they have driven before, there's a risk that they're going to go really, really fast and crash that car. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, Arigo Saki, the former great Italian coach, coached him at the 94 World Cup. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't a player, and whenever people brought that up, he said, you don't have to have been a horse to be a great jockey. There you go. Uh, but l- let's talk about Zidane and Real Madrid and where, where they go next. First, Zidane. Chelsea is the only uh, big club that's technically available, but it doesn't seem like they're going to go that way. So if he wants a club job, he's going to have to take a Pep-like sabbatical for a year, which I think he's fine doing. The other option that everybody keeps bringing up is France right after the World Cup. I don't know. I just feel like for a, a manager early in his managerial career and his prime of his career, taking a national team job feels like a weird move to me. To me, that's something you do later on. Um, I think he does want to go to a, another club and see if he can emulate the success he had at Real Madrid. Uh, so, I mean, do you agree? I mean, do you think it'd be a weird move at this point for him to take over France? I think he will at some point, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't see him taking over France. I see him taking a sabbatical. I see him taking time out. Uh, when he talked about it, I think he recognized that this was a good jumping off point, that he had done something historic that 
I think he also was reading some tea leaves and, and looking at the future and saying it's going to be a very different Real Madrid going forward and one that I, I, I don't, you know, he put all of his eggs into this Champions League basket when you look at what happened with the La Liga title. Who won that again? Anyway, <laughs> Francis, I love you. You know that, right? Barcelona fan. Yeah, so I, I just think that he, he says, I think he's going to take a page out of Pep's book and take some time off, survey the situation, let the chips fall where they may when it comes to other teams, uh, and then mosey on back into town and go to you know, one of the big ones. Keep an eye on Juventus. Uh, they yeah. might be getting tired of Allegri, maybe one more season Former with team. him, and then he goes there. Also, I guess if Tuchel were to do terribly at PSG or Nico Kovac were to do terribly at Bayern, those are clubs that I think kind of fit his profile. As far as Real Madrid, I think Pochettino would be their ideal choice, but it's going to be tough to get him out of Tottenham. Why? Just pay. You just pay money. Right? I mean, what's tough about it? You just pay a lot of money. Yeah, you would think, but from everything you read, that he's he kind of he's happy where he is. I don't know if he, oh, well, that's he different. Like though. he's gonna. But if he wants to go, yeah, he he's he's at least uh, displayed some in, intrigue in the job. He hasn't totally shut it down. Yeah, it's that's telling too. Because yeah. if, if you were committed and you you would come out immediately and not let this fester and say, nope, I, I'm here. I did exactly what I wanted to do. I would have done the same thing had the Real Madrid job been uh, afforded me, but. You know, the one thing so. I'll say, I tweeted this uh, that day. All the Champions League titles they've won under Florentino Perez, their current president, have been with these sort of laid-back, hands-off, players-manager, Zidane, Ancelotti, Del Bosque types. And yet he never learns that lesson. He still has this obsession from time to time of bringing in these strict disciplinarians. And, and that doesn't seem to mesh well with that dressing room with all the egos. You know, going back to the Zidane thing, how much have we talked the last couple of years about how Ronaldo respects Zidane and so he's willing to listen to him when he wants him to sit out games and rest his body. And, you know, you bring in somebody like a Rafa Benitez and he didn't command that same respect. Ronaldo couldn't, couldn't care less what Rafa had to say. So it's going to be interesting to see which way Florentino goes there, but whether he learned that lesson that, you know, there's a certain type of coach that works there and one that doesn't. I don't want to discipline Marcelo. I, I, exactly. I, I mean, I, I want him to be able to do whatever he wants. And that's, that's one of the great parts of what Zinedine Zidane did. My last question to you. Do you think that Zinedine Zidane, if he were to take a mid to lower level team in, in whatever league it ends up being, do you think he would be successful? It's a big question mark. I'm more with you on this. Okay. I know Warren Barton flips out anytime you make this right. point. Because he thinks yeah. a good coach is a good coach. Yeah, no, I think he's, he was a great fit for Real Madrid, but it's a total unknown how he would do in that situation. I, I, I can't say for sure he wouldn't succeed, but I can't say for sure he would. It'd be yeah. a whole different type of challenge. Yeah, I, I know there's lots of coaches out there that, that struggle and, kind of, and, and are in these positions of lower level and just teams that are just going to grind it out that look at someone like Design and say, well... That would be wonderful to be able to do that, and but it, it won't. All, it doesn't always translate that way. That way either, because the the importance of being that manager and managing, and we just talked about managing egos and not even X's and O's at times. There is that's a huge quality and a huge important ability that somehow sometimes we say isn't as important, but it is, especially when you're dealing with some of the greatest players in the world and some of the biggest egos in the world. All right, we will see what happens to Zinedine Zidane going forward. Regardless, he is leaving uh, Real Madrid on top and doing something historical with three Champions Leagues in a row and four of the last five Champions Leagues, Although correct? he wasn't the coach for that first of the four out of five. Well, still there. He was okay. actually an assistant to Ancelotti. But he's leaving. He's leaving it. Oh, yes. He's yes, leaving yes. it uh, in, in, this, uh, in this incredible position and i think he's getting out at the exact right time ask alexi all right it's time for ask alexi the part of the podcast when we answer your questions comments concerns that have been used on social media with the ask alexi hashtag so going forward please send us all your questions comments and concerns on twitter on facebook and all the different social media platforms out there but use that ask alexi hashtag and who knows Someday, David Mossy may read your comment, question, or concern on the State of the Union podcast, as he is about to do right now for these lucky few. All right. First up, at Chris Boron. Uh, we have growing numbers of U.S. players in the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, and Ligue 1, but none in Serie A. Why? A couple of things. Number one, I think the language is important, and so the allure of... EPL, just in terms of the way that they have branded themselves and the, the entertainment factor and the focus and the attention that goes on it. And then you add the fact that it is English language. I think that 
lends itself to American players wanting to go there. Uh, two, when it comes to the Bundesliga, I think they have demonstrated time and time again that they value American players maybe more so than any big league in the world. Maybe, maybe even more than MLS values American players. But I think that that lends itself right there to players uh, going, uh, going over there. And then when it comes to Ligue 1 and, and some that are just underneath in terms of, let's say, where they stand on the pecking order, I just think that there are opportunities. I would put Portugal, as we, we mentioned, France. Uh, La Liga, we haven't had a whole lot of success uh, and players in La Liga. So I, I think both of those two... Uh, and with with La Liga is more accepting, but I think when it comes to Serie A, they just look at American players as I can get players that are better, and I probably can get them cheaper, and they don't feel that they need to look at it necessarily. Now the 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 business part of it may come into play going forward as they look more and more to become global brands because having an American player on your roster and accessing that incredible market that exists over here. We look at what's happened with Borussia Dortmund, and I'm not saying there aren't Borussia Dortmund fans out there, but Borussia Dortmund with a Christian Pulisic is a different type of business proposition than without. You were the first one, right? First American to play in Syria? And we called it, I think, in the modern day, because if you went back 50 years or okay. something, there was somebody that went over there and played, but certainly in the modern day. It was, and it was scorched earth after I left. Uh, so I, <laughs> for, for a number of years until, uh, let's see, Oguchi Onye went there, Michael and uh, Bradley. Michael Bradley, and, and those type of players. But it's not a lot. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I can't put my finger completely on why it is a unique culture. It's an insular type of culture. There's a reason why... Very few. It's it's changed over the years, but certainly for a number of years, there were very few Italian players that played outside. You can make plenty of money uh, living at home. They were very very comfortable. For a long time, Serie A was the pinnacle, so you didn't have yeah. to go anywhere until the Bosman ruling and the European Community opened up, and then we saw a lot of migration and 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 movement out there. But it was it changed me as a player and as a person. And I, I would love to see more players, more American players get that type of uh, opportunity. D Danny Zatella, I think at one point went over there with Serie A, Serie B probably. When uh, Palotta bought Roma, when that ownership group yep. bought, he made noise about signing a bunch of Americans and there was pushback against that. So he hasn't done it, but that would be a team perhaps Roma. Let, let me ask you this, because when we talk about Pulisic, we always talk in terms of Bayern Munich or the Premier League, United, Liverpool, and maybe down the road, Real Madrid or Barcelona. What if like Juventus came in with a big offer for him uh, this summer? Would that intrigue you at all, him going to Juventus? Yes, that would intrigue me. Um, with Juventus in particular. Uh, so, you know, a Napoli would not intrigue me but a Juventus, because what Juventus has become, um, I, they maybe more so than anyone, have, have embraced this global brand. And, and AC Milan obviously has been a global brand in the past, but I get the feeling that it was just simply because they were so good. It wasn't by design. There wasn't a business strategy behind it. And, and, and I'm sure there's people that are screaming and yelling right now. But Juventus, I think, really recognized through obviously great players and great teams, the new stadium, all of that kind of stuff that they needed to step into the modern game and the modern business of the game, and I think they have done so. That so that would be wonderful. I would love to see Christian Pulisic playing for Juventus. You mentioned being in Serie A when it was at its pinnacle. One of my favorite conversations I ever had with you was when you were recounting all the different strikers you had to face week to week in that league. It was ridiculous. It was a joke. Every single week, because <laughs> every team had just massive names. And so from a center back's position, it was, it was great, because I was running around after after every big name player from all over the world, and back then, before the you know, before it opened up, you could only have three foreign players playing at a time, which is why you would look at AC Milan and they'd have a whole team basically up in the stands that couldn't even get on the field. Right. So it was the best of the best playing. I was really, really fortunate to get the, that time in uh, in Italy in Syria. All right, here's an interesting one at Gavin Mosley O2. Mm -hmm. If the offer ever came, would you accept a job as the national team coach for the United States? And follow up question: What would be your coaching philosophy? Okay, so I get asked this question all the time: uh, Do you want to coach? My answer is uh, no. I love what I do. I love television. I'm so privileged and fortunate to have found something that excites me and challenges me and gives me a platform uh, and an opportunity to stay in this game. Uh, it gives me an opportunity to perform and to entertain, uh, to travel, all of, these, all of these different things. We meet so many people in our industry, Mossy, and, and you know, that are just passing through and are just using 
television or media broadcast, whatever you want to call it, uh, as a way station until something better comes along, a coaching gig, a front office gig, or just any type of gig. And you can get away with that for a little bit. But ultimately, I believe it will manifest itself in your performance. And I think you're cheating yourself, and I think you're cheating the viewer. And I don't ever want to cheat myself or cheat the viewer. I want people that are equally as invested in, in this as I am. I want junkies. I am a junkie for this. Now, if there came a point where I had a desire to coach, I would do everything in my power to make that happen. I would talk to whoever and bang down whatever door and access whatever contacts I have to make that happen. That's not something I want to do. The only caveat I will, will say is this particular question is about the national team. I did not serve in our military, and so I did not serve uh, my country in that capacity. The closest that I ever got, and in no way, shape or form, I want to be very clear about this, am I equating playing for your national team in a soccer game with serving your country? But the only time that I rep ever represented my country uh, was through soccer. And so I hold a special part uh, in, in my heart for the national team. And so if somebody were to come along and say, would you coach the U.S. national team? I look at that as different than would you coach a club team or something like that. I look at that as almost a a, a call to action and a call from your country in terms of representing it. And so I would have to think long and hard. Those of you out there, don't worry. They got enough problems. It's not going to happen. So, so rest assured that's not going to happen. But I'm just saying that because, because it's the national team, it's because it's, and because it's the national team that I played for and because it represents the country that I know and love, that would be different. Uh, I would have to think long and hard about that. As far as my coaching philosophy that uh, Gavin wants to know, as I've said before, I think we have tried, uh, when it comes to the national team, we've tried to be everything to everybody. And I think it has wasted time uh, and energy and resources. And so I would articulate publicly and privately exactly how we are going to play. It may be a flawed plan, but it's better than having no plan at all. And let the chips fall where they may. This is the type of player that I want. This is how we are going to play. Either you fit in or you don't. We're going to talk later in the, in the podcast about fitting into national teams. And I'll, I will reiterate what I've always said is that a, a national team is not the best 23 players. A national team is the best collection and group of 23 players. And there is a distinction and there is a difference. And so I would make it very, very clear as to this is how you have to play and this is who you have to be to fit into this team that I am uh, forming. And it means that some players don't fit into it. And that's just the way that it is. But like I said, I think just for so long, we've been bending over backwards to be everything to everybody. And I think it is a, a fool's errand. And so that's, that's a long answer to your question. But that's what I think about when people ask me this question each and every day. At Kevin GDM 10 David Beckham had the biggest impact on the MLS. When and if his Miami team joins MLS, would it have a similar impact? Would he be able to attract more big names? Yes, he would be able to attract more big names. I think his there's a reason why MLS has given him so much leash, because they want him as an owner. Having David Beckham as an owner in your league is a good thing. Regardless of what you think of David Beckham, good, bad, anything in between, I'm telling you right now, it is good to have David Beckham in the league. He will attract investors. He will attract players. He will also be... Since his name is so big and since he is such a global brand, it will be on his shoulders to have this go well. When we talk about the Miami team right now and all of the trials and tribulations that they've gone through, it's always in the context of David Beckham. Whether he's involved or not, whether it's his fault or not, it is always going to be about David Beckham. Whether he is the majority or minority owner, it really doesn't matter. It's going to be about David Beckham. That's what you want. The onus is on him. And so he has a vested... Uh, interest in making it, it go well. I think that it, it was right to give him the time. I remain cautiously optimistic, but certainly a history uh, leads me to skepticism as to how this is going to work. But if you can get a good stadium in the proper area, and that's a whole other conversation for another time, 
then the pressure is going to be on David Beckham to make it happen from the crowds to the to the performance on the field to the way that it is embraced in an area that is notorious for not necessarily embracing uh, their teams. But you know what? We said that about Atlanta, and you see what happened in, in Atlanta. But having David Beckham, I think, is what is going to drive this team going forward, and is it going to be a crucial tool to make this team as good as it can possibly be. That is it. That is it. Our Ask Alexi segment comes to the end. Once again, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and who knows, in the future, David Mossy may be reading your questions, comments, and concerns. All right, moving on. World Cup Update. Yes, it's once again time for our World Cup date. Yeah, you get it. Uh, our World Cup date continues. We are less than two weeks right now before the kickoff. It is. It is. You can smell it. You can smell it. It is. It is everywhere. Uh, as I mentioned, David and I are going to be heading out in the next couple of days to Russia for the big tournament. We can't wait. Uh, we will continue to bring you all sorts of stuff from Russia. But for now, uh, let's move on to our World Cup date for this week. David, what are we talking about? I tell you, I get called David like once a year, and that was, uh, that was it right there. Um, <laughs> Only when, you're, when you've been bad. Yes. Uh, well, we're taping this on Monday, June 4th. Uh, the rosters are in. Teams had to finalize their 23-man rosters today, so uh, a lot of talking points have come out of that. Let's start with Mexico. They had cut it down to 24. Eric Gutierrez was the last player cut, a Pachuca midfielder who I actually quite like, who uh, I'm disappointed to see not in there, but it wasn't a surprise. Uh, the only question mark was fitness for them. Guardado, Diego Reyes, and Hector Moreno all uh, had some question marks. So, But I, I guess they've come through okay, and, and, and Osorio is uh, sufficiently convinced that they're going to be fit, so they are all in the squad. Well, there was also a question, and there has been for a number of months, as to uh, do you take both of the Dos Santai brothers? Do you take <laughs> one? And if you take one, does it irritate the other? And obviously, if you were going to take one, you would take uh, Jonathan as opposed to Giovanni. And yet Giovanni goes and scores a goal for Mexico, solidifies his is place and both of the Dos Santai you will be if you are a fan of them be uh, happy to know have have made it so a lot of decisions right now as I said in the in the previous segment the the art of picking a 23 is so interesting to me because it's not about the best 23 players it is about the best group it is about the best collection of 23 players which means that one-to-one, you may look at this guy and say, well, there's, how could you not pick this guy? And this guy is so much better. But if the coach believes that that guy is better for the group in, in any way, either from a playing perspective or from a personality perspective, you cannot afford to have bad eggs. Believe me, I know. You cannot afford to bring people who aren't going to pull their weight you have to make sure that you are being strategic in the way that you pick these 23. And no matter what, especially when you're some of these teams with incredible depth, people are going to scream and yell and people are going to call you all sorts of names because you didn't pick this guy or you didn't pick this guy. And that's what we're seeing right now. But that's part of the fun. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what Mexico, uh, what their starting lineup is. Uh, obviously, Lozano is the best player on the team, so he'll be in there. Chicharito, you would think. You've got uh, Corona, Carlos Vela. You know, you can only fit so many of those guys. He's going to have to make some tough choices up there. Uh, I saw this stat on Twitter, so it must be true. Uh, this is the first World Cup that Mexico squad, the majority of players don't play in Mexico. 15 of the 23 play either in Europe or MLS. So that's an interesting wrinkle. Well, Juan Carlos Osorio has been pretty outspoken about wanting players to play in Europe and not forcing them, but saying, given, <laughs> given a choice, I would rather you be doing that. So uh, I don't, we'll see if that's a good thing or, or a bad thing. When we look at some of these players that are not being, uh, being picked, uh, what stands out to you? Because I'll, I'll just gonna run through a list here that I was given by our faithful crew here. Uh, Icardi from Argentina, Martial from France, Sané, Germany, Gotza. Scored, a, <laughs> scored the winning goal for the uh, World Cup four years ago, and now can't make the team. Nangolan from Belgium, Fabregas from Spain, Alexandro uh, Brazil, David Luiz from Brazil, Laporte from France, Bellerin from Spain, uh, Leno from Germany. So any of those stick out to you? I think there's a lot of talk right now this morning uh, when I was coming in to, uh, to record this about... Sané from Germany not making the list. Well, we'll get to that in a second, but I was joking with uh, our producer, Francis Silva, that Alvaro Morata can't even make the snubs list. He got snubbed from that <laughs> list. Our other producer, Alex Dowd, big Chelsea fan, was not amused by that conversation. <laughs> Which makes uh, it that much better. Yes. But yeah, Sané to me is uh, the big name there. I would have thrown in, boy, Rabio didn't make that team either, huh? All right. So he's a snub from the snubs list as well. Um, oh, and he and he let his feelings be known <laughs> that he's not happy. He, <laughs> 
but yeah, Sane was was the big news today. We should get into that. I mean, you just went on a whole spiel about how it's not the best twenty three players; it's the guys who fit in the best or whatnot. So that's that's your take on this whole situation. People yeah. are are projecting what he did with Man City, and that doesn't necessarily mean that he would have been the best fit for no. Germany. I mean, this there's summer. some people that transcended. Okay, so Mo Salah, uh, we know that Liverpool is not playing. Last time I checked, in the World Cup. And so just because he's been good for Liverpool does he mean, doesn't mean he's going to be good for Egypt. But he transcends it. I mean, no matter what, he is not just one of the, the, the best players, probably the best player for Egypt, and you have to take him, unless he's just a complete cancer. The problem is even a player who's a complete cancer that's as good as Mo Salah, <laughs> you'll deal with it on the, on the field. And, and that's where that balance and that calculation has to come, where it is – and, and, and to, to be fair to Yogi Lo, uh, when he talked about, uh, about Sané, he said it was really close and doesn't make Sané feel any better. But this, these are the calculations and these are difficult, difficult decisions that a team like Germany, much more so than a team like Egypt, has to make. It's funny because a few months ago, Keith Costigan, who you know I like to work into every one of our podcasts, of course. him and I were having a debate on Twitter and a bunch of other people got involved, including our John T. Whitehead, our former boss, about who would you start at the World Cup, Royce or Sané? And uh, I never imagined that those two were essentially fighting for a spot in the squad. I thought they'd be both in there. Although the more I look at that squad, Julian Brandt is really the guy that sticks out that got picked over Sané. And he's a guy who's talented, Leverkusen, but to me is always kind of flattered to deceive. I don't think he's put it all together yet. So yeah, if you compare their club forms, that's no contest. Leroy Sané is much more of a reality than Brandt, who's still kind of a good prospect but yeah yogi love apparently feels like bront is a better fit for the group that he's put together but, there but when you do this you also set yourself up because if it doesn't work out first thing that people are gonna say well it would be nice to have sunday to put him in uh, yeah. in this game when you needed a goal and you need somebody that was going to you know spark the spark the game i i mentioned him early i mean what a fall from grace for uh Gotze. i mean this is is this pretty incredible to see something like this yeah again the way the last four years have gone it wasn't a big surprise but in in the macro sense of yeah you score the winning goal in the world cup final and you're not even at the next one when you, when he's it, only he's in the prime of his career in theory in terms of I'm age not, i'm not crying for him i mean he scored a winning goal to win the world cup so he's going to be forever remembered but. have you seen his girlfriend i'm definitely not crying for him although they might be married by now i don't know i haven't kept up on that but uh, I remember the shots when he, at the Maracana of him celebrating and, and his girlfriend came on the field and she was quite lovely. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let me say this about Royce. To me, he no-brainer to be in the squad and to me, no-brainer to start if he's fit. He's that good. Uh, to me, he, he brings a different element to that team. So I expect to see him starting. You have Werner and Gomez both in there, so there's that debate. Thomas Muller, obviously, is an option up front or playing behind the striker. So Draxler, Ozil. So, yeah, they're, they're loaded and plenty of options there. So Sané gets squeezed out, but it's not like they don't have other guys to... Yeah. And, and plenty of MLS influence in this World Cup out there. Uh, Panama's got a lot of MLS players. Uh, Nicolas Lodero from Uruguay left out of Uruguay. Yeah, I saw that. Now, remember, Uruguay is a team I'm super high on. I, I know, think they get to I the know, semis. Know, know. Uh, one of the young players I kept mentioning when I did my whole Uruguay monologue, Federico Valverde, did not make the cup. But all the other ones are in there, Maxi Gomez and Bentancur and Nandez and Arascaeta. So um, I'm sticking with that. Very high on Uruguay. I think they get all the way to the semis. But yeah, Lodero, that, that was a bummer. You know, it was close. I, mean, but... I remember, as I, I think I mentioned this on a pod a few uh, weeks ago, that Nicolas Lodero was at one point when I was, I remember researching and getting ready for a World Cup, and he was one of those young players to watch when right. he was playing over in Europe and stuff like now. And obviously, he's come back to Seattle, or not come back, come to Seattle. It went well initially. It has not gone well for him now. You wonder if that had anything to do. Is he just, is he just not playing well? Uh, have they just moved on from him? Because he never really fulfilled that potential of being that, that guy, except all along, he was still being called in and still still playing. So not good for him, and also not a good look for Seattle uh, and, and ultimately for MLS when a player like that, who you thought at least was going to be on the 23, is not part of that it's going forward. All right. That is our World Cup date. As we mentioned, we will be, next time uh, we talk to you and give you any type of World Cup date, we will be coming from Russia, and we'll have plenty of those going forward. But those rosters are out. So all of that research about players that are not involved, you can throw that out the window. Uh, these are the players that are either going to sink or swim for all of these uh, teams. All right, moving on. Coming to the end. The back three. All right, here we go. The back three. Uh, some of the biggest stories, games, moments. Mossy, what are our back three for this week? 
All right, let's start with uh, going over some of these World Cup tune-up games. A lot of big storylines coming out of those. First, let's uh, let's address the Paulo Guerrero situation because I know you and Rob talked about it last week, but mm-hmm. at that point he was out. Now he's in. Uh, his doping ban was uh, not revoked but suspended. He might have to serve it after the World Cup, but he's okay to go to Russia. They had put him on their 35 for that eventuality. They put him on their 23. And this past weekend he scored two goals in a 3-0 win over Saudi Arabia. I am coming to grips with the fact that picking Denmark to finish above Peru in Group C might have been one of the stupidest things I've ever done because uh, this Peru thing is legit. They are a very good team, and everybody else is on this bandwagon, and I, for whatever reason, didn't get but, on but it. But you can change it. You can change well, it. If I mean, look, if, if, if Guerrero, who we didn't think was going to be there, is now there, and he's a game changer. I mean, if as I said to you earlier before we started recording, if, if Erickson broke his leg, God forbid, and I'm, I'm knocking wood, so don't worry, your, your view on Denmark would be very different. I'll have to check with our producers. Tweets have already been sent out, graphics built. It's it's a whole big mess to change our prediction now. But yeah, and, and again, the important thing to remember is Peru were looking pretty strong even without him. In March, without him, they beat Croatia and Iceland. They beat Scotland a few days before he got cleared uh, with Farfan leading the line, Carillo looking good, Tapia and Flores in that midfield. I think Gareca is an excellent manager. So there was a lot to like anyway, and now you throw in this top-notch striker, their country's all-time leading scorer. So they're, they're... All right, so Peru's winning the World Cup. <laughs> and keep in mind, as these, these preliminary games happen, you've got to take them with a grain of salt uh, because whether it's – Players in different positions, whether it's different formations, whether it's the second, if you will, the second tier type of players playing, it's not always a clear indication of what, what is going on. Although, it was fun to see, for example, Neymar get out there and not just get out there, but score a goal. It was fun to see Manuel Neuer get out there, those types of things. But it was also, you mentioned Guerrero, he, he not only get out there, he gets out there, he scores goals, he does what he has been called to do, and he is, if there ever was a, and I'm going to use it, drink, ready? Talisman. It is he. Now, I compare this whole Guerrero situation to Deflategate, which I guess makes uh, Johnny Infantino, Roger Goodell, and you agree with me, this whole thing was farcical, right? The way it kept changing and different courts overruling one another, and I mean, this, this surely this could have been handled better. It's strange. It, 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 I mean, because... <laughs> Not only was he dinged, but then it was upheld, and then it was expanded and, and uh, increased, right? So somebody somewhere and some group, some panel somewhere, obviously believed that something had happened. And yet when you read the, the justification for this, and as you rightly mentioned, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's not going to be punished. It just means that he's not going to be punished here. How convenient. Uh, and so he's going to be able to play in the World Cup, and they've just kicked the can down the uh, down the road here. But when you when you read these, it seems like a clear cut mistake. Whether it was a cup that had it in and had minuscule amounts, and when they looked at the actual amounts, it wasn't consistent with somebody who was not that I would know, but what I've heard is doing massive amounts of cocaine or anything like that. So it, why did it get to this point is what, is what my question is. I don't think you have the answer. I don't think I have the answer. But ultimately, from a soccer perspective, we get to watch one of the great players in the world, a player that is crucial to his team, a player that their world sentiment wanted to have this moment. He gets to have this golden moment. I, I don't know if you saw it, but the video of him arriving at the camp after this news had broken, it was really cool to see him walk in and the, the high fives and the, and the hugs. He is obviously so important to this team on and off the field. And they are crisscrossed with Argentina's group. So if they finish second behind France, which a lot of people are predicting Argentina win their group, it'd be Argentina-Peru and their coach Gareca is Argentine. Yep. That'd be, as is like every other coach in this tournament. Were you cool with uh, Neymar? Would you, were you happy? Oh, you you got to be happy, right? Happy to see him back. Concerned about all this talk that he's still only 80%. He couldn't start this game. He's hoping to be back to 100% by the knockout stages, which seems contradictory because a couple of weeks ago, the reports were he's practicing at full speed, even ahead of where, what we expected, practicing at the same degree that all the other players. And then all of a sudden, now there's this talk that he's not 100% yet. That's a little bit worrisome to me. But who do you have to use Neymar in in the group stage? Nobody. All I've heard from you and everybody else is this Brazil team is so much more balanced. This Brazil team from four years ago is so much better and so much more equipped to deal with a loss of Neymar. We saw what happened when Brazil lost Neymar in the previous World Cup. This one, it's okay. They're confident. They have the ability. They can pick up the slack. Certainly in the group stage, do you you want him there? Great. But do you need him? So what do you you care if he's not 100% yet? No, that's fair. Uh, Let me say this about Brazil, though. 
And you watched the game against Croatia this past weekend. They won 2-0 at Anfield. Firmino scored, which made all the Liverpool fans happy. And just <laughs> stoked that whole Firmino-Jesus thing again, which I think... He's rolling his eyes, folks. For those of you who can't see, he's rolling his <laughs> eyes right now. I think Chichi has boxed himself on the corner a little bit here because he wants to play this fluid possession style, really impose himself on the opposition control games. But the guy who he had all throughout qualifying that was like his two-way player in midfield that stitched everything together was Renato Augusto. And he suffered a... a terrible loss in form. He's battled injury problems. He's in the squad, but I don't think he's going to be a big factor in Russia. So now he's juggling between two options that both involve kind of playing a guy out of position. He could go Fernandinho there, who started the Germany win in March and started this game against Croatia. But you saw that makes that midfield very like slow and plodding and lacking in creativity. And then the other option that he did in the second half was play Coutinho there, which, you know, makes obviously adds quality and makes it uh, more potent, but but makes you more vulnerable defensively. You didn't see it in that game because the pace really slowed down in the second half. But against Russia in March, Coutinho started a game in the midfield and it was like end to end and he was struggling to keep up. He looked like me after walking up two flights of stairs. He was like huffing and puffing. And so there's not really like an ideal option there. Like so he's boxed himself into a little bit of a corner here with that, uh, which bears watching. Okay, So you hate Coutinho now, and and. Uh, Bobby, right? Now, one, okay. <laughs> no, no. Now, the Firmino Jesus thing is legit. Uh, Firmino's in much better form right now, and that, that's going to be an interesting debate that's going to roll right into the World Cup. But let me say this that we saw the, the Fernandinho lineup in the first half without Neymar. Neymar has a way of making every lineup look more explosive, you know, so I'm sure if you'd put him in there, I'd probably have a different perspective on things. So I think all is still generally well. I thought Danilo played well at right back, so some of my concerns there were alleviated. I think he'll do fine there. So. Now, I said don't read too much into these friendly games ahead of the yeah. World Cup, but Germany did lose. Yeah. Uh, lose 2-1 to one for the first time against Austria in how many years? How, 32 years they lose against Austria. Is this, in a certain way, a good thing? In- we need to get our producers' microphones. It's like the third time oh, today no, 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 they've no, 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 fed no, no, us no. information. They never, get no credit for that. never, ever want to do that. No, no, no. It's just, you know... You just hear him in the background. Well, yeah, the story here was Neuer, and and regardless of how the game went, or just the fact that he was on the field and played right. 90 minutes to me is a win for them. It shows that it vindicates a decision to bring him. He's fit. He can play. So now, presumably, he steps right in, which is really harsh on Ter Stegen, who I keep saying. It to me is like one of the five or six best goalkeepers in the world and was probably secretly looking at Neuer and thinking, oh, you know, if he's not back yet, I'm good All to right, go. All right, so who, so who starts for Germany against Mexico? First I think game it'll be Neuer. in their group. I think it'll be Neuer. You think it's Neuer? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, One last thing I want to say on France. This was bad news for the other 31 teams in this tournament. Uh, I think Didier Deschamps finally figured out the right lineup to play. It's something I said on this podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, they played Italy in a friendly, okay. and did not. he did not start Olivier Giroud. He started a front three of Griezmann as a center forward, flanked by Mbappe and Dembele, and they looked great. That lineup is so much more explosive, dynamic. Dembele scored a beautiful goal. He looked great. Uh, so to me, that's—and then it was Pogba, Kante, and Tolisso in the midfield. You can debate the personnel, but I, I, the general idea is get Giroud out of there. He's a nice weapon to have off the bench, you know, if you need a— tall striker, but but uh, their base formation should be something more explosive, which I think with Mbappe, Dembele, and Griezmann it is, and and that, that's a scary team for sure. It works better for Pogba, too, and for Griezmann because it puts Griezmann in a central position. And, yeah. All right, we'll get into all of that uh, going forward. All right, what's what's next here on our back three? 2026 World Cup bid. Ooh, yes. So uh, FIFA did you know a study of the two, Morocco bid, and then that U.S.-Mexico-Canada bid, and they rated in all sorts of things from uh, stadiums to facilities to travel and, Security, and organizational costs and all that. Yeah. And the U.S. bid got a much higher score. Was it 4 out of 5? And yep. Morocco was 2.7 out of 5. So what do you make of that? So uh, once again, a reminder, on June 13th, if all goes as planned, uh, uh, FIFA is going to come together the day before the World Cup kicks off and is going to vote on the 2026 Men's World Cup. Uh, right now, it is between a Moroccan bid and the joint uh, united bid, they're calling it, of Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Obviously, it would be a seminal moment if that joint bid were to win. Uh, World Cup coming back to the United States for the first time from a men's perspective since 1994. These ratings that came out, while it's FIFA and anything can happen, I am cautiously optimistic, and I think that this is can only be looked at as a positive. Not just because the ratings from a numbers perspective are what they are, but it in doing this, FIFA has provided some countries out there with cover to vote for the U.S., Canada, and Mexico bid. Because keep in mind, for the first time, all countries, or all members of FIFA are voting, and it's going to be public. 
This was a change that was made. I think it was a good and positive change. But it means that if you are to vote for a country or countries, in this case, for a joint bid, it's public and you may face some heat, either internally or externally. And so this is something that those countries that maybe will face some heat, I'm not talking about France. France doesn't face any heat by supporting Morocco, a country that they have had a long history and tradition with. But, but some of these countries that are doing this, they get to turn and they get to say, well, look, look at the disparity in numbers here. I can't rightfully support something that is so, so far ahead or so far behind, depending on how you, how you look at it. And that is a good thing for this, uh, this joint bid. Well, it would surprise me if Morocco was voted, even though it's FIFA. I think that this is looking good. I remain cautiously optimistic. My fingers are crossed because that would be a wonderful, wonderful moment and message uh, to have. But this, this coming out, when it has come out, I think is a good thing and bodes well for the United bid. Any concern that FIFA is being so blatant in their preference of the U.S., Mexico, Canada bid that might actually might alienate voters? They might vote for Morocco just to kind of they're turned off by. What do you mean? It's not blatant. I mean, it's there. There are criteria out there. What? What? If you fail a test, okay, it's not because I don't like you. It's because you you didn't live up to it. Everybody had the same criteria. And that the United States, Mexico, and Canada has a four out of five, and Morocco has a two point seven out of five. It's not because FIFA hates Morocco. It's because they, they don't have the infrastructure. They don't have... And by the way, for those that, that don't know, this is also going to be a 48-team World Cup. Okay? So that all, factors, that, that all factors into it. So no, I don't think... I, I do think that FIFA wants the joint bid because they and then all of their members, including members that maybe don't like the United States, are going to make a boatload of money and more money than they have ever made in the past. But this is simply a calculation that spits out a number and that number is good for the joint bid fair enough uh we will end on the u.s men's national team who uh played some games here recently they beat bolivia they lost to ireland they have a match against france coming up uh now still no coach or general manager but did you feel yourself getting interested again did you feel like these games had a little bit more significance than the the previous friendlies or not you're still in this sort of weird kind of I'll be honest with you. I'm in, I'm in such World Cup mode right now. And because there, well, there still is no GM, although all the rumors and everything points to Ernie Stewart, and obviously there still is no coach, I, I, I find it hard, other than just because I'm a junkie, to really care that much because things are going to change. I, you know, the game against Bolivia, Bolivia was horrible, horrible. <laughs> and... And then, you know, you go to Ireland and, and you lose. But, you know, once again, I like that there's a bunch of young players getting experience and getting internationals. I like that there are, you know, it's, whether it's a Timothy Weah or a Josh Sargent or obviously the Weston McKinney's. We saw Pulisic, who was completely exhausted in that game against Bolivia and just needs a little bit of time off to go away and come back refreshed. That's all good. But I'll start thinking about the U.S. men's national team after the World Cup. I will say, though... Um there's a group of people out there who have been talking about what a complete disaster U.S. soccer is that have ba- painted themselves in a bit of a corner here because they feel like they can't give an inch. If they say anything positive, it undercuts their larger right. narrative. And there's undeniably a group of exciting young players here. It's okay to say that. Pulisic, McKinney, Sargent, Timothy Ware, Tyler Adams, Cameron Carter-Rickers, just to name a few. And, you know, you got to see them all in the same field against Bolivia. And so I don't think the reaction on Twitter was over the top, but there was a sense of, boy, it's been such a depressing last eight months. This is like the first positive night when you can feel good about things. And then there were a group of people that felt like they need to shut that down. Oh, Bolivia was terrible. Give me a break. It's Bolivia's C team. And it's like, look, the fact that they played well against Bolivia doesn't change the need for promotion relegation or a new calendar or anything that you've been railing about. But can you just, like, take a night off of that and just acknowledge that there's some good young players on the field here? That kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little. Well, in, in no way am I suggesting that or, or demanding that people not care about these no, games no. or anything but, but, like but that. But if, if I asked you, you'd, you'd acknowledge that there's some good young players yes, in the U.S. right now. Yeah. And then, but I've said that all along, right, even before right. these games. <laughs> I've said that the, this is not a situation where we need to tear it all down. All right? We do need to tweak. We do need to change some things. And we do need to look at some things in a way that maybe we haven't looked at it in the past. But I still remain bullish going forward. And you know, these games don't change that. And, you know, for, for a couple of hours, yeah, you can watch it. But my focus and energy and, and, uh, uh, and, all, and all of my concentration right now is on the World Cup, as it should be.
which brings us to the end, my friend. And at the end of each podcast, we talk about my one big thing. And dovetails perfectly into the fact that the World Cup is upon us. David, we will be heading out to Russia in the next couple of days, a place that neither of us have ever been, right? Correct. As I mentioned in the State of the Union, I think we are going to see uh, an American soccer community and an American soccer culture come together this summer, and this particular summer, uh, in a unique and, at times, inspirational way. It sucks. Again, I will say it sucks to not have a U.S. team in a World Cup. It's disingenuous for myself or you or anybody, and certainly any of us that work at Fox, to say it doesn't matter. It matters. It matters because every four years, from a men's perspective, we have this platform and this opportunity. And this summer, we are wasting that opportunity. And that opportunity is to propel us forward, not by leaps and bounds, but just by propelling us forward. And we will not have that opportunity to do that from a men's perspective. But what we will have an opportunity to do is to prove to, not the rest of the world, to be quite honest, more importantly, to prove to ourselves how far we have come and who we are. I've often argued that our American soccer culture, out of necessity, is more educated than anybody out there. I know people right now are screaming at me and saying, no, you can, that can't possibly be true. But when you look at what this incredibly diverse country and therefore this incredibly diverse soccer culture has become, with all the inevitable compare and contrast between here and everywhere, everywhere else, it means that our American soccer community, we follow all the different leagues and we follow all the different players. Unlike other soccer cultures where there's you know a couple here and there that, that they follow. That makes us, I think, uh, better equipped to handle this summer. And I can't wait. I can't wait because if there is a silver lining, it is going to be that this unique soccer community that, once again, as I said, has emerged and become no longer niche but above ground, is going to show itself in all its glory. And in all its American glory, it's different it's something to be proud of. It's something to be cherished as we are celebrating, whether it's El Tree or whether it's Iceland or whether it's just a great goal. This is a party, and this is a party that everybody wants to go to, whether they have a team there or not. And I think this summer, this party that we are going to bring to you each and every day is going to be celebrated in such a wonderful and unique way here in the United States that there are times where people are going to be caught up in it. And people that maybe weren't expecting it are going to say, man, something is happening here. We'll be over in Russia, and so we're not going to see it. Is it going to be like four years ago? No, it's going to be different. But I think it's going to be equally as interesting. And I think people, whether they realize it or not, are going to say, man, this is a party and I want to go. We got your invitation this summer. So I can't wait to, uh, to bring that to you. Next time we speak to you, as I said, we will be in Mother Russia. Each and every day, uh, we will be bringing you the World Cup. Myself and David Mossy will be in Moscow. Our set at Red Square, the iconic Red Square, is going to be awesome. I can't wait to get over there uh, and to start work. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Next time we talk to you, we will be talking to you from Russia. Thank you, and as always, size the day.